1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your hosts Ugo Che and Ralph Velasco. Hi, Ralph. How are you doing?
2: Hey there, Ugo. I'm very well, thank you.
1: You're uh, home in Chicago right now.
2: I am. I am just for another uh, week or so. We've got the out of Chicago conference this weekend, although that will have been in the past. Uh, and then I'm off to Costa Rica for a scouting trip.
1: Oh, wow. I'd love to go to Costa Rica. I had that on my map a few years ago, but then then we didn't for some reason. I don't even remember why, but uh, it's another one of the, those places that I would love to go to. Uh, as uh, is the, the place that our guest of today just, uh, well, just returned a few weeks ago. Uh, and we wanted him to tell us all about Hong Kong. And our guest uh, has been with us already... Uh, Quite some time ago, it was episode 24 where we had Doug K with us talking about Cuba. So back then, Doug went to Cuba and uh, told us told us all about it. And now he has gone east to Hong Kong, or maybe you, you've gone, you've traveled west from from where you
0: are, <laughs> right, Doug? How are you doing? I'm doing really very well, guys. How are you? I'm good to see you both.
1: Good to see you. Nice yeah, I was to see you. you. You travel west to go to to Hong Kong from. It's uh, it's South west east.
0: from here. Yeah. Yes, you, we we travel west in order to get to the east.
1: Yeah, and you <laughs> go east to go to Cuba. For me, it's all reversed. But yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's all it's all good. So f- first of all, um, yeah, you've been with us uh, as I said again uh, in episode twenty four, uh, but we've been uh, in, co- in contact for a long time. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting you and your lovely wife when you came to Italy to Venice. Was a past uh, nice, uh, nice date together. Uh, unfortunately, I think we we talked about a possible return uh, to to Italy of you and your wife, but I think those plans uh, had to be put aside for a while because you had a a little, just to use an euphemism to to put it gently, <laughs> a little accident. So. Uh, for those who cannot uh, see the video because we're only publishing the audio but I can see you doug we have a, you have a nice neck brace there so for for those who have not been keeping up with you can you just give a uh, what's 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 been uh, the, the problem
0: yeah I uh, well my wife and I were off for a nice long weekend when it was beautiful. Uh, afternoon drives on a sunny day when all of a sudden a driver coming the opposite direction on a two-lane highway decided that he would rather be on my side of the road instead of his. So we had a head-on collision. Uh, I was going 50 miles an hour. He was speeding, probably going 60 or 70. And uh, uh, so my wife and I both have broken necks, broken sternums. She has three broken ribs, a broken arm. I have only one broken rib. And uh, the good news is that yesterday... Uh, I just hit the six-week point, and uh, I got the news from my doctor that things are looking pretty good, so I don't think I'm going to need surgery. I'm going to be in this neck brace until uh, at least early August, but uh, it looks like things are going in the right direction, so I'm very happy about that. Yeah, we're very happy. I recommend to to anybody, don't don't break your neck. It's very
1: painful. (laughs) We're happy to hear that. Yeah, definitely. So send uh, our best wishes to, to your wife. And, uh, we hope
0: thank you and she says she says hi to you Hugo we'll
1: thanks uh we hope you will uh, you will recover soon and you you will be on the road but uh, uh, ju- just before the accident uh, as we were saying you had been in Hong Kong so we wanted you to to tell us uh, about your your experience in that uh, uh, really interesting city at the convergence of uh, two or maybe more cultures. So first of all, I would like to ask uh, uh, why Hong Kong specifically? Why did you decide to go there? What was the, the opportunity, the occasion that uh, sent you
0: there? That's probably the hardest question to answer. I don't know. I just was always curious about it. Uh, like a number of people, I originally thought that I would get there before it was handed back to the Chinese. Uh, I didn't make that, so I didn't experience that version of hong kong but i was just always fascinated by it and uh wanted to go there so a friend and i decided to book another photographer decided to book a trip and we went there and spent uh about six days and uh i just loved it it's a great city uh, marvelous for photography and for almost everything else
2: i think hong kong just the, just the name hong kong had always uh just been so like uh i don't know uh exotic to me uh, before I went in 1988 on my round-the-world trip back then, but uh, I was always very compelled to go there and saw that it was some a place that I could visit on my round-the-world trip, and uh, so I, I was there in 1988 before it did get handed over. I guess that was 99, right? And um, uh, so it was, I'm, I'm glad to have seen it back then. Uh, what were some of the the photography highlights that you had on, on that trip there, Doug?
0: Well, uh, you know, I'm a street photographer, so I was primarily looking for those kinds of situations. Uh, We for example, we didn't get a chance to go up to the top of, I think it's called Victoria Peak. Is that right? I think that's it. Didn't get to go up there because we never had the weather. We never had the classic sort of urban landscape shot that you get from there. Never had the visibility. Uh, but I went primarily to photograph the people and the architecture and the people and architecture combined, and it did not disappoint. You know, one of the problems of going to, uh, I think, Asian cities in particular, is there is so much stuff, it's visually so cluttered, that it takes you some time to just figure out how you're going to approach it because it's a bit overwhelming. And um, I was glad to have more than just a couple of days there to sort of, uh, you know, eventually figure out what it was that I really wanted to shoot. But it worked out really well.
2: Doug, how do you uh, thwart that feeling of overwhelm? I mean, are you working from a shot list? Uh, how are you preparing? How are, you Because know, I know it is overwhelming when you get to a huge city like that. You know, where do you begin?
0: Well, I started, I, I planned the trip. I use an app called Galileo Offline Maps Pro. Uh, it's a, an app for iOS and Android. And it literally has free open source maps that are the same level of detail as Google Maps. So you have every store and restaurant on there already. Uh, and of course, it works offline, hence the name. And what I do before I go on a trip like that is I identify locations. Primarily, I go to places like Flickr and so forth and uh, find photographs, get the latitude, longitude, identify them on the map. And then using Google Maps on my desktop machine, I create a .gpx file, and that has all the coordinates and metadata for these locations. I transfer that to Galileo Offline Maps Pro, and now I go to places place like Hong Kong or Cuba, and I have all the possible places I might want to visit on a map that works full-time. And uh, it's a it's a it's a great way to do it. I started doing it in Cuba on you know I've been there eight times I guess trip number three or four is when I started doing it and I've built up quite a collection of location bookmarks. Um, but you know the best laid plans of mice and men right you go there and uh, you end up not going to most of the places that you planned on you go to locations you didn't plan on uh, but Tong Kong turns out to be a very easy city to navigate. Uh, easy to get around, transportation is great. Uh, So I ended up shooting, you know, like I said, a mixture of people, some architecture, uh, and then people with architectural backgrounds or graphics. There are a lot of strong graphics. Because it's a big modern city, you have that sort of over-the-top advertising, large posters, large signs, and they can make for really interesting combinations and juxtapositions uh, with uh, real human beings in the foreground,
1: kind of a Blade Runner scenario.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's you know when you first go to a place like Hong Kong, you it looks look like Blade Runner. There's so much, so much neon. Just you don't have quite the smoke that you have. in Blade did, did you have rain? Uh, we had a little bit of rain. Yeah, it wasn't. It was mostly hot. We were there in um, mid uh, mid to late April, and it was already starting to get quite warm. So. Um, uh, that was you know the biggest challenge for me.
2: You know Doug, talking about uh, photographing billboards and signs and things like that, uh, I'm sure you were thinking that you were going to incorporate the the language, especially those Chinese characters, into your photographs. Uh, to me i I love to incorporate the language into my shots, especially when they use a different type of uh, character like in Thailand or or China. Um, is that kind of what you were thinking in that in that sense provide that sense That's of, a really yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting question Ralph because you know in most photography you have to be very careful if you photograph a street sign in English, let's say. If you have a, a marvelous scene, you know, where where does the viewer's eye go? The viewer's eye is going to typically go to, you know, the classic things like the, the lightest spot, the most contrast part of the image. You'll always go to a face. If there's a sign, you can't help it. You'll always go and read the sign. Of course, that's if you can read that language. So... For us, I don't read Chinese, so if I see a sign in Chinese, that to me could be just an abstract piece. It doesn't distract me in any way. However, I imagine if I could read Chinese, that having a Chinese sign in the image would be a distraction. It would be a place where my eyes would naturally go. So, um, you know, to me, the Chinese characters, I admit I didn't play with them in that way. I didn't treat them as unique elements. They were just like more of the background just like everything else but it, it did, does make me wonder how how an image looks to us versus how it looks to someone who's a Chinese native.
1: How was the, the people there was the, the interaction speaking of going a little bit beyond language so the, of course language yeah, can be a barrier a- but I think most people in Hong Kong would speak English but uh, where were the interactions so do you find did you find any cultural uh, divide to, to bridge?
0: Yeah, and it, it tends to go with age. So you have the the older people who are... Uh, well, first of all, it's a very cosmopolitan city. So you have people from all over the world there speaking every possible language, just like you'd find in, in Paris, New York, and so forth. Uh, but um, you have the older, sort of more traditional Chinese um, who are a bit more Chinese, and then you have the sort of young... Um, sort of urban workforce. They're they're dressing more youthful styles. They work in finance. Of course, finance is huge in Hong Kong. Um, they're out at clubs at night. Uh, so you have sort of a, a split there, uh, as, you, as you have sort of anywhere in the world. But younger people, you know, they tend to be wrapped up in what they're doing. If they're by themselves, they're probably walking around looking at an iPhone. So, you know, You can photograph them because they don't pay any attention to you. The older people, particularly some of the shopkeepers, uh, they don't really like to be photographed, so you have to develop techniques and ways of photographing them that uh, is less obtrusive and really doesn't get them upset.
1: Yeah, I had the same impression in in Beijing, which is the only little bit, if we can call it a little bit of China, that I've seen where... uh, the The workers, the people that uh, that work in shops and and restaurants and uh, and stalls and so on, which they they typically don't like being photographed. I was told off a couple of times, whereas probably that the younger people are not used, maybe because they are not perceived as, by us Westerners, as to be uh, typical, traditional, exotic they're not so much the subject of photographs, so they they don't care as much. Whereas maybe the the more traditionally dressed people uh, that are doing activities are feeling like they are uh, in a zoo, only they are the the animals in the zoo.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, we all are sensitive to it. You know how much photographers hate to be photographed. We hate to be the subjects of photographs. So it gives you a a sense of what it's like for somebody on the other side of the lens. Uh, I think, you know, I don't do many portraits anymore. I tend to, I tend to photograph people more as an abstraction. I'm looking more for their posture, their gesture, uh, the shapes of their body, particularly how the shape of the human form contrasts against architecture, or how a person's post- posture is juxtaposed against some other graphic elements in the shot. So I'm not generally out there photographing portraits. Um, you know, if you find someone with an, an, an older Chinese person with an interesting face, you know, you, you get tired of that after a while. You realize, okay, I've, you know, I've managed to capture a person with, a, with an interesting face, but there are millions of them in Hong Kong. So it doesn't feel particularly special. Uh, so anyway, mostly what, I, what I'm doing is nowadays, at least in my photography, is trying to make interesting compositions using people more as graphical elements. Um, sometimes though I'm able to tell a story, I'm able to get a scene, I'm able to capture a bit of life and reality, uh, but I tend not to focus on, uh, an individual as the sole element in the photograph.
2: You've sent us some really great shots to put into the, the blog post that's going to go along with this episode. So for those of you who are uh, just listening, uh, please do check the TTIM.photo website to to look at uh, Doug's photographs, Doug. Uh, with regards to Hong Kong specifically, you know, you've got Hong Kong Island, which is a very large island, and then you've got Kowloon, which is on the mainland. Uh, did you uh, concentrate on a specific part of Hong Kong, or did you get all over the place for the most part?
0: Yeah, we we ended up, um, you know, not knowing the city. We didn't really know quite what to do. We stayed in a hotel on Hong Kong Island. We were a little concerned that maybe that's not the best place for us, but it turned out to be marvelous because we were in Central, which is a district of Hong Kong Island. uh, And that gave us access to we were right near the transportation hub, one of the hubs. So we could get anywhere. We could walk to the Star Ferry. We could walk to any of the trains, buses. um, And Hong Kong Island is is particularly hilly. There is a mountain there. Uh, You can go all over the place or many, many different levels. Whereas Kowloon uh, is a little bit flatter. uh, And I would say that Kowloon is more, more tends to be the more traditional Chinese. You have a lot of the large open-air markets. You have the ladies' markets, the fish markets and things like that. On the Hong Kong Island side of the harbor, you have uh, more of the architecture, the modern architecture, the financial hub and things like that. Now, it's not, purely the case. You have both on both sides. But we actually ended up spending, I would say, more of our time, or the better part of our time, on uh, Hong Kong Island. Um, We, we, of course, ventured across to Kowloon almost every day at some point. But um, I I really liked being on Hong Kong Island. I think that was a great place to be.
1: What's the difference between the the two sides? I mean, Hong Kong Island is more modern.
0: Well, uh, again, it's just sort of a it's not black and white, but I would say, first of all, is the the physical geography. Like I say, Hong Kong Island is much more hilly. You have Victoria Peak. You've got, you know, a large mountain there. If you go around to the south side, you even have a beach. In fact, one day uh, we went with a friend of a friend who had hired a model for the day, and we went around to that south side and photographed the model on the beach. Um, that's something I never expected to do in Hong Kong, which was go to a nice resort area. Uh, people from uh, uh, Australia, for example, tend to come places like that. So um, Kowloon, on the other hand, is more traditionally urban. It's more of a grid structure in terms of the way the streets are organized. Um, and again, that's where the big markets and all the shops are. And uh, for example, one of the things we did was go shopping for used camera equipment. And all, of the, uh, all the great shops for that are in Kowloon.
2: So how did you get around? I know you mentioned the Star Ferry. uh, Was it mostly walking, using the ferry to get back and forth across the harbor?
0: Yeah, we we picked up at the airport. We bought what they call an octopus card, which is a stored value card. And it's very inexpensive to get around there. And you basically just use it like you use it in any, any rapid transit system. You, you know, tag in, maybe tag out. And they deduct it from your card. And we use that for the ferry. We used it for the trains. We used it for the buses. Uh, Very, very easy city to get around in, both to navigate and to get from place to place. And one of the things that shocked us was that everything there works. You know, the trains work, the escalators work. The ferries are extremely efficient. I mean, it's just you know, the one ferry pulls up, they load people, they go across the harbor, they unload. They just go back and forth, and it takes them no time at all to get people on and off the ferry. It's quite impressive. So transportation is great. And yes, we did a lot of walking. You know, we put a number of miles on the uh, on the Apple Phone <laughs> apps every day, uh, quite quite a bit. Just okay. like Italy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just every,
1: like everything very efficient. <laughs> everything
0: works. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just I, exactly. Yeah, sure. Sure, it is, Hugo. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: when I was in Hong Kong 30 years ago, 1988, I can't believe I can say that now. Uh, I remember the Star Ferry being seven cents a ride. Just to put that in perspective, it's maybe doubled now to 14. But <laughs> you said that you had bought a card, so you really weren't sure what uh, what what the, the specific ride was. But uh, I was there in 2013 for the first time since 88 and uh yeah i think I, I think it was about a quarter or something but uh really very efficient uh, transportation great way to get around and and i was uh, when i first went to hong kong i was just overwhelmed and and it's changed a lot in the past 30 years but by the the modern architecture and uh, uh we were talking before we went on air um uh, when the, when i was there that 30 years ago they were they were constructing the the uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, and that at the time was the most expensive office building in the world, and it was surrounded by bamboo scaffolding. Did you see anything of like that uh, for that type of contrast?
0: Yeah, well, isn't that just amazing, Ralph? It's just you're, you know, if you live in Hong Kong, you don't think anything of it, I imagine. But to me, walking around and seeing these huge buildings and bamboo scaffolding some of it I swear must go up you know 20-25 stories and it's all just put in by hand it's bamboo and it's lashed together with twine and uh they use it as their scaffolding and it's it's it you say god is that safe is that secure but it's it's remarkable and i i did manage to get a couple of pictures i hope i was able to capture the the sense of what that actually looks like it's uh it's difficult to photograph but it's pretty wild
2: it's incredibly strong i mean the the, the bamboo a very very strong product but also uh, you see these guys just climbing it with their feet and hands you know with no stairs or anything just sort of uh, climbing it as if it was a, a rock face or something.
0: No, yeah, it's a, it's very impressive. You know, there are a number of things you see, you know, when you go to countries like Cuba or Hong Kong, and you see things, you, you look at them, compare them to the States, for example, and you say, well, this would never be approved. This would never pass the building codes. You see all these things, but yet everything just works. It's amazing that a city that is that densely populated functions so well. I mean, it is a it is a vertical city. Your typical apartment building looks like it might be 40 stories tall, and if you think about the the, the density of people and the fact that when they're not in their homes, they've got to be in their offices or on the streets or underground, and that's why you realize it is so incredibly crowded. And yet. People have learned how to walk down the street, not bump into each other, or at least for the most part, not bump into each other. Um, And uh, all the systems that they've developed, the creativity of human beings to adapt and just make things work. It could be in Cuba where, you know, they can't get parts for the cars and they scrounge together things. They make things. Hong Kong's like that, too. They improvise. They make stuff work. The difference is Hong Kong has a lot of money. So uh, a lot of money goes into making things work there, as opposed to Cuba, where it's all a matter of uh, sort of um, uh, human creativity.
2: How about getting around by escalator? Did you do much of that, Doug?
0: That's a a good lead-in, Ralph. You know, one of the most marvelous things there is on Hong Kong Island, there is a series of escalators that goes from pretty much sea level up. I don't know how far up the peak it goes, but quite a distance. I don't know what it is, 20 or 30 uh, escalators, one after the other. And this is a commute for, for hundreds of thousands of people every day. So in the morning, the escalators are running down the hill. The people who live up higher are coming down the escalator. And at 10 a.m., they reverse them and they go up the hill. And this is people's daily commute. And they're, you know, they're On the escalators, they're reading their newspapers, they're looking at their phones, and they get off of—at every level where you change escalators is a community, right? There's a street, a cross street that goes across there, and there are shops, and then you hop on the escalator and you go to the next one. But you could go, you know, escalator, pause, escalator, pause, and I imagine you can get all the way down the hill probably in, in half an hour or so. Um, and it's pretty amazing. And like I said, they all work. I can't imagine in the U.S. having every escalator working all the time, but they do that there.
2: Doug, are those free? Is it free for everyone to to commute that way?
0: It it is. You just get on. Yeah. You just hop on the escalator, and that's it. It's I don't you know I don't know how it evolved uh, to be what it is, but it's a pretty brilliant system. And it's just it's one of those. It's like the bamboo scaffolding. You sort of scratch your head and say, "Well, why not? Yeah. You know, it works." I
1: would like to talk more specifically about photography um, as Ralph said you've sent us a, a few samples of what you, you photographed in Hong Kong and you already mentioned uh, that that you paid a lot of attention to to composition to go a little beyond the the interesting subject per se, which uh, c- can be a little trap. I think we we already discussed this idea of uh, uh, having the subject kind of a, a trap and uh, all you think of is the subject and you tend to, to forget a little bit about the maybe the composition or how the subject relates to its surroundings and, uh, and I see you employed a, a lot of uh, layering and juxtaposition in, in your photos. Do you, do you want maybe to To expand a little bit on that, what what are your thoughts on on those specific ideas?
0: Sure, I I think, you know, all of us, no matter how long we've been doing photography, uh, no matter how good we are at it, we're always trying to improve and we always hit plateaus. We get to a point where we get frustrated with our photography, we feel we're not getting better. Or we're sort of repeating ourselves. We're doing the same shots over and over again. So I'm like everybody else. I'm at a point in my photographic career where uh, I have certain frustrations. And one of the things that, that I'm working on right now is something I also teach my students, which is, as you mentioned, Ugo, is trying to avoid what I call subject seduction, And the temptation, particularly when you're in an unusual environment, is you see something interesting, and your first instinct is to raise the camera, push the button, and take a picture. Uh, Of course, we all hopefully get past that point. We get to the point where we realize that in order to really honor the subject, we needed to work different angles, different backgrounds, uh, different times of day, and things like that. But in my photography... I'm trying to get past that because I don't think, for example, I don't believe that if you find an interesting person, that a photograph of an interesting person by itself makes a good enough photograph. You still have to consider composition. You have to consider juxtapositions. You have to consider storytelling. So just a rectangle, a rectangular picture of a face, no matter how interesting that face is, to me doesn't, isn't enough to make a good photograph. So What am I working on personally? Um, I am trying to work on layering. I'm trying particularly to work with foregrounds, midgrounds, backgrounds. What I'll typically do uh, these days is I'll I'll go and I'll find a stage. So I'll find a really interesting background. um, And I may decide, for example, I want to photograph a person in the middle And in the foreground, maybe I want to have just some people walking past. And I think in at least one of the shots that I sent you, uh, we have something like that. So I'll compose the shot knowing what the background is going to be. I'll wait for a really interesting person in the middle. And then I'll play with people walking left and right or towards me or away from me in the foreground. So I actually get sort of the abstract people in the foreground, somebody of interest in the middle, and then a juxtaposition with the background. An, an example that, that uh, I use is in Hong Kong might be someone who's running a fish market stall. You know, you, you may have trouble, for example, photographing that person. They may not want to be photographed. So what can you do? Well, you can take a step back and you can shoot over the shoulders of people who are buying fish. Well, what's the interesting shot there? Well, the interesting shot is when the merchant hands the fish to the customer, or when the customer hands the money back to the fish merchant. And you can sort of pre-focus and pre-compose. That way you get, you don't have to see the whole person in the foreground, the customer, but you have to get a sense of them. And then you can really just put the person's hand, the people's hands in the middle, uh, and then the background of the fish market gives you the environmental look. So, I'm I'm working on shots like that that are more complex, more rich, that tell a story that still have interesting compositions and interesting juxtaposition, but where I'm not purely just seduced by a subject and deciding that that's all I need is an interesting person. Makes sense? Absolutely.
1: And um, I think that's something that I should more attention myself. I think I'm, I'm a victim of this subject seduction. <laughs>
0: Should learn to. Well, we we, to avoid. we all are. We have to. We have to fight it. And I think, you know, one of the things I try and teach is that, um. Street photography has its. I, I think street photography to me is one of the most difficult genres of photography. It has all sorts because in addition to all the photographic elements, you have the whole psychological aspect of being out there and interacting with people or not interacting with people. And that's a a personal challenge for all of us. But ultimately you still have to make a good photograph. You can't just overcome your fears. You can't just find good light. You've still got to make a good photograph. And I think that's what gets forgotten many times.
2: Doug, when, uh, you know, so much of photography is about timing and anticipation uh how often are you you know finding a great background and then waiting for things to happen in front of it you know
0: that's that's mostly when I'm doing it right, Ralph, that's what I'm trying to do um uh, you know if if I'm just finding something like I say and pointing my camera at it and photographing it that's that's a weak shot. but in a place like Hong Kong, which is a very rich environment. I try to literally do that. I try to find an interesting background. I decide what my composition of the shot is. The very last thing I do is decide who's the subject of the photograph. That's a bit of serendipity. I'm waiting for a person to walk into a a stage, a shot that I've already uh, pre-visualized, that I've pre-composed. Now, I may get a person who's particularly interesting, I may get a person who's only interesting because of their posture, their gesture, or the way they relate to the background. And oftentimes, the relationships of the foreground, the middle ground, the background, those may be things that aren't even aware of each other in real time. They're only reacting to one another in my photograph. They're not reacting to one another in the actual scene. So that's me putting my creativity into the shot. It's how can I make these people visually interact with something else even though they are not interacting with themselves in the actual scene. Am I explaining that one? <laughs> it's 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 a tricky thing.
2: Yeah, and I think uh when you say how can you make them, I mean obviously you're not affecting the scene I'm assuming, but you're trying to have all of these things sort of come together and to create a, an interesting photograph, uh, anticipating things coming from different sides and angles, maybe even from behind you, and then uh, f- you know foreseeing that photo opportunity. And uh, are are you you know checking your exposure beforehand? So then all you got to do is pretty much point and shoot, or are you you know working with settings and everything in those kinds of situations? Because I would think that everything's very fast moving. Uh, for street photography that you just have to be ready to point and shoot.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, I like everybody, I've developed, uh, I've tried a number of different techniques for a while. I would go out and I would keep my camera in full auto mode. Don't tell anybody, right? But I would shoot in full auto mode. And, and that worked really well for a while. And then I had a realization because I, I shoot film a lot. I shoot film, for some reason, I've been shooting film like the first four months of every year for the last few years. And Uh, I do it without a light meter. I just use the Sunny 16 rule. I've been pretty successful with that. But you realize, you know, if you go out on a sunny day, in street photography, we tend to expose for the highlights. We expose for the sunlit areas. And we let the darks, the, the shadows go completely black. We just don't worry about shadow detail for the most part. Well, as long as you're in the full sunlight, your exposure is the same no matter where you go. So you can set the exposure using metering or sunny 16 rule and your exposure is done that's it you don't have to change for for the rest of the day similarly with focus you could do some zone focusing you could if you're going to shoot at f11 f16 with a 28 or a 35 millimeter lens you can just zone focus you can focus for two meters Uh, if you're going to shoot a stage um You can decide whether you want the background to be fully in focus. You can pick your depth of field. So you get that all set up ahead of time. So now you're literally just standing somewhere. You might be there for a long time, but you're standing somewhere. You've got your shot figured out. Everything's set. You're in what I... I tend to be in manual focus at that point because someone's going to walk into my frame. I don't want them to suddenly change my exposure or change my focus. You know, if if somebody walks in and they're wearing light clothing, I don't want my meter to suddenly cause the aperture to stop down or the shutter speed to go up. If somebody's wearing dark clothing and they're big in my frame, I don't want it suddenly to brighten up. So all those settings are done ahead of time and I'm just literally worrying about the, the, the subject that walks into my frame.
1: Yeah, really interesting technique uh, for for me i find that i, I tend to move a lot around. Right. i'm not one i don't have the patience to sit in a place for for a long time so i tend to move around a lot and that means to walk that means that the light as you said might change so i'm i'm still on I'm still have a kind of aperture priority guy with auto eyes so most of the time
0: well I I tend to be I do tend to shoot an auto ISO but uh, you know coming from film which I I just love shooting film you can't change the ISO you're sh- you're stuck with 100 or 400 that's what the film is right and there's nothing automatic about my you know my my Rolleiflex or my Hasselblad actually the Hasselblad has some metering in it but you know you've got to set everything by hand anyway so you don't really have much of a choice there um so we're talking about uh
1: uh something that might happen in the street some some action and so on uh, uh, th- let's imagine that you you're looking for some some interesting action like in a in a fish market or some kind of other situation where people are interacting and you're uh you're shooting them and you notice uh, some action happening but maybe maybe you miss it would you ask those people to to repeat it for you
0: you know, I rarely do. One One of the things is that most things will repeat anyway. Um, you know, if someone's in a fish market, you know, there's not just one opportunity to, to catch someone buying and selling fish. The guy's going to sell more fish. There'll be more people. Um, if you're shooting a skateboarder, the skateboarder is going to jump. Well, he's going to jump again. Whatever it is, it's rare that it's not uh, repeated. And... Uh, again, for the stuff I'm doing, I'm not looking for a moment. I'm looking for a unique moment, but it's not the only time something like that's going to happen. For example, I might just go to an intersection and I might decide I'm going to get a shot with an interesting background. Maybe the painted lines on the street, maybe people coming and going, bicycles. Well, I know that if I stand at that intersection... That every time the light changes, people are going to be walking towards me, people are going to be walking away from me, vehicles will be going left and right, and uh, I can play with that. It's a, it's a re- you know these things they do repeat. It's different every time, and you want to get one that's particularly interesting visually. But uh, I don't tend to go up to people and ask them to repeat something. Now that's having said that, some of my favorite shots that I've ever taken. We're done just the way you described. Once I was in New York City, I was in Washington Square Park, and it was a really hot day, and there was a a young woman sitting by the side of the fountain, and she got her hair wet in the fountain, and she just shook her head like a dog would shake off water, and the water was flying off her hair, and it was just gorgeous. And I saw it from the other side of the fountain, and I came over, I I told her what I had seen, and I asked her to do it again, and to this day, it's one of my favorite shots. So uh, I'm not... I'm not totally opposed or immune to doing something like that in order to get something that I really uh, like.
1: Yeah, in that case it would have been really unique. You either get it at that moment or you don't get it anymore, unless you yeah. stand by that fountain for years hoping that some woman will come there and wash their hair, <laughs> which <is> not, <laughs> not really doesn't really happen frequently, I guess.
0: You know, I want to mention one thing. We're talking about techniques and uh, as I said, I'm sure for For you guys and for everybody listening, as I I, I say, we're, we're always trying to get better. We're always trying to use new techniques no matter what kind of photography we do. What I'm working on right now and I've done for the last few years, I'm really focusing more on light than anything else. Now, you may not see that in the Hong Kong pictures I've given you because uh, the accident happened quite soon after I got back from Hong Kong and I've processed very few of the images that I took there. So you just have a sampling. But typically when I'm doing my street photographer photography, I will walk around and I will literally look first for good light. On a sunny day, I'm literally looking for shafts of light between buildings. Uh, I'm looking for light reflecting off of windows. And I might see something a block away. I might see a shaft of light. Say, I'm going to go and explore that shaft of light. And then I get there, and I the next thing I'm looking for is background and composition. And the last thing I'm looking for is my subject, my lead actor. And um, that's, that's the technique I've been using recently. And, you know, when you look at any photograph, you want something that's impactful. You want something that, if it's on a gallery wall... And somebody walks in, they see your image across the room, and they're drawn to it. They want to go look at it. Well, you need impact. And to get impact, you really almost always need to have good light. And so I start with the light.
1: I'm taking notes because I really need to, to practice this. <laughs> that's great. I think that's, that tip is golden, right? Think about uh, the, the settings and then about the subject. Uh, but you you said you, you sent us just a few photos because you you didn't have much time to, to process them. But I'm just curious. Uh, I also know that much of your equipment is still in that car that was involved in the accident. Does that mean that you also still have memory cards or roll of films in there that you are have not been able to, to collect, to recover?
0: Yeah, it's really sad. Uh, my wife and I were going away for a three or four day weekend and I took all of my film gear. There's nothing digital in there, but I have... And it's still locked up in the car because there was a fatality in the accident. The The other driver who was at fault, uh, unfortunately, one of his passengers died in the accident. It gives you a sense of how violent it was. But the car's locked up for evidence, even though I didn't cause the accident. Well, in that car, in addition to all my personal belongings, are my Leica M6, my Roloflex 2.8F, my Hasselblad 500 cm and my large format speed graphic and all the film and all my Leica lenses and all my Hasselblad lenses I mean it's, it's sad and I don't know I've been told not to be shocked if some of it didn't survive the crash mm-hmm. uh, so I don't know yet um, but I have I guess the good news is I still have all my Sony gear because I didn't take any of that so I've got some digital stuff still here I, unfortunately I can't uh, I can't shoot at all until I get this uh, cervical collar off so I've got a, probably a couple more months before I can even lift up a camera.
1: You should probably get into food photography and shoot food in your home with an <laughs> iPhone.
0: <laughs> I I should yeah that I can hold an iPhone that I can uh, Okay.
1: Then we'll, we'll wait for for your new career as a food photographer.
2: Doug uh, Doug was uh, did the accident happen on the first day of your trip and so you hadn't made any photographs with the gear yet
0: that's right we were heading out to a place here called bodega bay uh, here on the west coast of california and it was you know it's one of those things if you're going to travel on an airplane you pack very efficiently right you say well you know i got to fit it all into one suitcase maybe a carry-on and a check bag but if you're driving somewhere for a three or four day weekend you take everything you know, should I take this sweater or that sweater? You take them both. Should I take my hiking boots? Sure. How many cameras should I take? Take them all, right? <laughs> so yes, we were we were on the way to uh, a house that we had rented with a number of friends, and in fact, we had uh, texted them saying we'll be there in thirty minutes, and that's the last they heard from us. Oh boy! So they uh, they had to figure out what happened to us.
2: Yeah, you know, I am not a street photographer, and I I do enjoy. L- looking at it and making my feeble attempt at it when i do uh get into a situation where i think it, it, that type of that genre would work and and i do enjoy it and i and i love looking at good street photography and you've certainly uh, given us some of that so i, I want to encourage everyone to make sure that they look at the blog post so that that they could admire doug's work here um Doug, I noticed too that uh, some of the images uh, you you did present in black and white and some in color any uh, you know how do you decide which ones to present in either or well,
0: yeah, it really comes down to what tells the story the best um, and a lot of times you know when you see things like Hong Kong or san francisco's Chinatown. You would think color would tell the story because there's so much color. But what I find is that color can often distract, um, especially when there are people that you're trying to photograph. So um, my tendency is to look at each image individually. I don't usually decide ahead of time. Sometimes I know up front I'm definitely making a black and white image or I'm definitely making a color image. but um, And, of course, when I shoot film... Um, if I, I mostly shoot black and white film because I process it myself. I don't have a choice there. But sometimes I even shoot color film, send it to the lab. Uh, but I think in many cases, I find that color actually distracts from telling the story. And uh, that's why uh, so much of what I do ends up in black and white. Good point. Okay, so...
1: I think it's been a really interesting conversation we had today. You made me want to go to Hong Kong. Uh, I'm Really, recent years, I've started going more and more to Asia. Uh, I'm actually going to Singapore in, uh, in a few weeks, so I will cure my uh, addiction to Asia by going to Singapore, but maybe one day I'll <laughs> go to Hong Kong as well. I think there they might have some similarities, but also some differences. I'm really curious to, looking forward to, to go in there mm. Ralph we will have to do a, an episode about Singapore when I Absolutely. come back yep. um, so Ralph anything uh, sorry Ralph Doug anything else you would like to to add
0: no I uh, I, I really appreciate the chance to be on the show again to just be with both of you guys it's been great um, I'm hoping you know I had to cancel any Cuba workshops Uh, this year because of the accident i'm hoping that uh, i can ramp up the cuba workshop business again in 2019 so if you're interested go to dougk.com d-o-u-g-k-a-y-e.com maybe i'll get my portfolio updated too that's been a couple of years since i've put any (laughs) new photographs on there um But there's a place to sign up to get on my mailing list for future workshops in Cuba. And I'll also be uh, doing some probably in San Francisco, maybe New York as well, uh, once I fully recover and get my camera gear back and uh, replace whatever was damaged. So uh, I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Do you also want to mention your podcast or Gordon will be upset? That's right. Yes. Well, many people will know me or hopefully will know me from the Camera Labs uh, photography podcast. That's CameraLabs.com. Gordon Lang is Mr. Camera Labs. He's probably the best reviewer of cameras and lenses on the entire Internet. Uh, And I have the honor of being his nodding dummy. And that is that uh, uh, I um, I basically am the guy who sits there and asks him questions when we produce a video uh, episode. Uh, We just finished one um, that should be out soon. No, it is out soon, actually. It is out. It's uh, discussing the future of Nikon and Canon as they enter the mirrorless market, hopefully for real. Uh, But we review almost every major camera that's on the market today. So go to Cameralabs.com and check out Gordon's review and the podcast that we do together.
1: Do you ever review or discuss film equipment? Because, I mean, there you should be the authority instead of the nodding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I I used to do, I was the original, I was the creator of a podcast on the This Week in Photo Network. It was called All About the Gear. Um, And uh, we did an episode on All About the Gear that was all film and that was a lot of fun that was a number of years ago though
2: and i'll and i'll contend uh, number one we've had gordon on the show uh, so we'll put a link to his episode in the podcast but uh, whenever i'm asked what kind of camera should i get which i often am i point them to gordon's website because he is so thorough and uh, really does a great job with just about every camera and accessory out there. So if people are looking for good information about what types of cameras to buy or to look for uh, comparisons and things, reviews, definitely go to Cameralabs.com.
1: Yeah, definitely. And what about your website, Doug? Where can people find you?
0: Yeah, they can just go to DougK.com, and from there you can get to not just my portfolio, but you can find me on Facebook, where I'm pretty active, uh, especially when I have some photos to post, which I don't at the moment, uh, and to a lesser extent on Flitter, Flitter, Flickr, Flickr, uh, Instagram, and 500px. That's where you can find me.
1: And that's K with an E. That's correct. K-A-Y-E so people don't get confused but we will of course put uh, links to all that we mentioned today in, in the show notes together with your with your photos so what what, what can i say we, we i hope to that our paths will cross again uh, when you are able to travel otherwise i will have to come down to california and uh, which i would not uh, mind at all i mean <laughs> what's not to do would be nice to be no, able to come I back to california
0: yeah, and I wouldn't mind coming back to Italy as well. So one of those is going to work out for yeah, us. Sure. We, we just have to. We just. We just have to pull Ralph along with us, no matter where we go. Or Cuba, or somewhere in Asia. Okay.
2: okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and thank you, Doug, for being on the podcast. Appreciate it.
1: So, Ralph, that was a really great conversation with a very good friend of us. Uh, it's it's really always a pleasure to to talk to doug he always has so so much to share uh, with our listeners so uh, before uh, uh, closing this uh, you said you were going to costa rica soon uh, doing a little scouting trip so the photo tour of costa Rica in your uh, future maybe
2: yeah i just got back from scouting portugal for next year but i'm heading uh, next week to costa rica as well for another new trip that i'm adding to our portfolio for next uh, june july of 2019 so people can keep an eye out for that Uh, probably take a month or two to get all the information up on the website but uh yeah if uh, people are looking to find more information about me they can uh, search the web for uh or any of the social media networks i'm at photo enrichment or at ralph velasco and go to my website photoenrichment.com uh, i've got a one or two spots left on my upcoming copper canyon trip to mexico bigger and deeper than the grand canyon and one of the great train rides of the world right through it and also my india trip has a few spots as well as uh a Cambodian, Vietnam are starting to fill up. So it kind of fills out the rest of the year. How about yourself, Hugo? What do you have coming up?
1: Well, I just want to mention that uh, since uh, uh, Doug spoke about Venice, the fact that we met in Venice, I have this, uh, and I got a couple of inquiries recently about this very short tour uh, in Venice that I'm doing in November. It's going to be November one to four, and it's called uh, um, Venice Unknown. So what we are going to do is we are going to the uh, off the beaten path locations in Venice that the tourist groups uh, don't usually go to. So uh, I'll lead people to to explore those uh, parts of Venice that are uh, less touristy, if you want. But uh, I think they uh, show the real face of the city once all the tourists are gone. So if you want to, to know more about this, I've still got a few spots left and it's it's all uh, together with all my tools. It's on my my tools website at tours.ucphoto.me. and of course you can find me at ucphoto.me, my main website and all of the various social media. Just uh, Google my name. And as for this show, uh, it's uh, as always at ttim.photo, and I think this is going to be episode 134, so it will be available at ttim.photo forward slash 134 and i think that's uh, that's really all now